Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. What makes for a great vacation? Depends on who you ask. Are you looking to get away or bring everyone together? Do you want to get outside and play or see a play at the plate? Fortunately, however you operate, I'm the destination you've been looking for. The name's Missouri, but you can call me Mo. And I have just one question. What's your M.O.? To find your M.O., tap now. Or for information on safe travel, come see me at visitmo.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops Season 3, Episode 11. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops Pod is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white dudes. Would you believe it, girls? Uh, There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, well, the news is racist, allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, <laughs> I'm like, wait, there's more. <laughs> and if you order now. 
Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And if you're not on Facebook, you can join the discussion on Twitter or Instagram by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. All of the footnotes for each episode, which articles and other media we use to source this story, the music notes, all that stuff can be found on our website. That's right. So if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App, which you can download to your phone. And we are at the Cash App forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale. Mom, please buy a mug. I don't know how many times I have to ask you on our website at Fruit Loops Pod forward slash merch. If you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. So, Beth, who are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about Christopher Jordan Dorner, a black Ooh. man who killed four people and wounded three others during a spree in the Los Angeles area in 2013. The victims he targeted were police and civilians, including police families, because Dorner was a cop. Oh, no. Oh, no. I need to hear more. This subject was suggested to us by C. Nico, a member of our Facebook pod squad. Hey. Yeah. And this is going to have to be a two-parter. It's really long. It's the quintessential true crime story about America race, crime, policing, and the melting pot of all of those things. That's right. So um, be prepared. Uh, this is a juicy, juicy one. And I wanted to um, just welcome to uh, Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Now, I remember when this story came out about Mr. Dorner. And my first thought was, which... I, Many black people, if you've seen an episode of Blackish, <laughs> or you know black people, or you are a black person, you know this sentiment. The idea of seeing this terrible news story and thinking, like, oh Lord, have mercy, please do not be a black guy. Please do not be a black guy. And the reason is because we each feel like we carry the entire race of people on our backs at all times. Black people are not a monolith, but meritocracy does not apply to us in the same way that it does to white people or white adjacent people. Um, when one of us does well, we all do well. Woo LeBron James, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and when one of us does bad, we all do. Hence Christopher Dorner. So when I realized that uh, he was targeting cops and uh, it should be no surprise to any black and brown person our experiences with uh, Blue Lives, a.k.a. police, is vastly different than uh, other communities in the United States. I'm terrified of them. And as I write this, I can think of not a one situation in which I would call them. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about a time when I took my kids to swim lessons, and they went to swim lessons in the hood. And uh, there was like a crack deal going on, and my husband he's you know old whitey he was like we should call the police and i was like why bro like you're just going to you know like bring the police into these people of color's lives and they're just gonna ruin it or like my mom my brother right now is kind of mia and my mom was like somebody was suggesting i call the police and have them do a um wellness check on on him and i was like no do not have him get in contact with the police like it's dangerous so anyway 
uh, again, I'm terrified. And it, um, personally, I understood why Mr. Dorner felt the way that he did, um, why he felt he had no option other than to do what he did. I understand it. Um, I understand the fear and terror that communities in his wake felt as well. I'm not undermining that. No one should kill. And I will say, I know that this is a very hot take. I may get slammed for this. I think uh, an argument can be made that he was like mm, a black Batman taking on the <laughs> LAPD, which is a, which has a horrendous history with the black community. And for those that don't know, policing in America wasn't established immediately when um, the United what, 1619 is when the settlers brought um, black people, stole them from Africa and blah, 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 and brought them um, to the shores of the United States. But it wasn't always a thing. But since part of their job has been to police enslaved black people or catch escape slaves. And really, the um, their job hasn't changed. It's really shifted. Um, so black people are obviously not enslaved anymore in the United States, but there sure are a lot of police officers after them. Also, white supremacists intentionally throughout history, and I didn't know this until seeing the 13th documentary that we talked about um, in one of our bonus episodes, <laughs> Get At Us Patreons, um, <laughs> where <laughs> white supremacists intentionally joined police departments with the goal of being able to maintain that supremacy by way of legally abusing and stifling communities of color. Which is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess I would argue that Christopher Dorner is more like the Joker. Mm. Um, he was someone who was hurt deeply in the past, in his childhood and uh, later as a young adult. And he sought revenge and he sowed chaos in the process. So uh, although I do agree that part of his motivation uh, was his idea of justice, um, but but we'll get into it later. We we will. We will. But before then, how you doing? I'm okay. Um, not much going on with me but work and working on this podcast. But you know what? That's all right. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, uh, there is a lot of work to be done on this show. We uh, recorded yeah. our bonus episode for our patrons uh, and Patreons yesterday evening. And so, Beth... I'm going to do my best to get my shit together and get it edited to <laughs> release. Uh, but other than that, all is well. The devil is alive, I must say. I hear him. And I have a super cunt in my life who I pray <laughs> daily, daily, that the Lord give me the strength, giveth me the strength to not slap a bitch. Uh, who can relate? <laughs> also, finally, the weather is cooling down in, in, in Phoenix, and I am not mad about it. So, no, not now, at all. <laughs> that's right. We are going to get into our listener letters. Oh, hello, angels. Hello. God, can you believe it? I have the, I have the Taylor Swift. I'm so surprised I won this award face on. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So what do you got, Beth? I veer via Apple Podcast, who is from Norway. Ooh. Yeah, pretty cool. We got listeners in Norway. They said, amazing podcast. And finally, a true crime pod with more unknown subjects. So Ooh. hip hop air horns to you, I veer. That's right. Here it goes. Ooh, right what you know about that in the Norway? <laughs> in the Norway. <laughs> 
And we also got a complaint about our audio from Amagaro on Apple Podcasts. And we hear you, boo. Uh, when we started this thing, we had no idea what we were doing, and some of the audio was pretty bad. We have also had issues with microphones and recording spaces, and I think we have worked out most of the kinks at this point. Yeah. Um, and at some point, I'd like to go back and clean up some of the old audio, but we seriously have not had a spare minute to do it. We pour our heart and soul into this thing. I spent my entire weekend researching and writing for this episode. Um, I do hope that next time we go on a break, we can do some of that kind of thing. But we also want to create more bonus content, too. So, you know, hard to keep up and go back and fix things. But thanks for letting us know that this is important to you. And it's definitely on our radar. Certainly we do. We do our our best here at uh, Fruit Loops HQ and um, we hear you loud and clear. So we're learning every day and trying to make a better podcast every day. That's right. When you know better, you do better. And that is that is what it's all about. Yep. Um, so this one is from uh, Tish Arini, 88, via Apple Podcasts. And she said, uh, well, I'm just assuming Tish is, is uh, a woman. But however you identify, you know what? Don't listen to me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the comment was, you ladies are just amazing. And I'm new to this whole podcast thing, but I've been binge listening to several podcasts at work and yours is by far my favorite. I love true crime. So I'm excited to hear about cases I haven't heard about before. Thank you, Wendy and Beth, for doing such an amazing job. And thank you, Tish, for all of the words and the love you get all the hip-hop air corns air you get all the hip-hop air corns you get them all you get them all we see you boo yeah thank you thank you so much we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna get into the story when we come back all right i'm roseanne host of the california dreaming podcast a true crime show that delves into the darker side of California. Join me each week as we take a tour of the beautiful beaches, majestic mountain ranges, expansive deserts, and soaring redwoods to discover some of the most chilling, fascinating, and depraved criminal acts that have taken place across the state. You can find California Jimmy on all of your favorite podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the show's link to find hours and hours of true crime tales from the Golden State. Thank you and sweet dreams. So, um, Beth, now we're back. Wow, podcast magic. Uh, So who is our subject today? Our subject today is Christopher Dorner, an ex-police officer who went on a killing spree because he was angry about his firing from the department and what he saw as injustice and corruption in the LAPD. So much to say about those words you just spoke, but now we're Mm going to get into the stats. So... Hey. So um, Christopher Jordan Dorner, a.k.a. Mr. Manifesto, a.k.a. Mr. Cop Killer, which I just made up. Those are not his real <laughs> a.k.a. He was 
a black man born on September 11th, 1979. Uh, his spree was from February 3rd, 2013 to February 13th, 2013. And he specifically targeted police. He killed four people. Let's speak their names. Monica Kwan, an Asian woman, and her fiance, uh, Keith Lawrence. He was only 26. Uh, he was a black man. Michael Crane was a 34-year-old Riverside police officer. And Jeremiah McKay was a 35-year-old uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy. They were white dudes. Uh, Dorner took his own life, um, and he injured three others. And among the injured were Officer Tachias, who was Crane's partner, and Deputy Alex Collins. There were three people who were shot by the police in a case of fuckery and mistaken identity on the part of the LAPD. And the crimes took place in Southern California. So LA County, Riverside County, and San Bernardino. And his MO was a siege spree killer. And in the end, he was involved in a shootout with police. And he used assault rifles, sniper rifles, smoke bombs, and pistols. Mm -hmm. So now we are going to dive into the setting. So take us there, Beth. The setting is Los Angeles in 2013. The Los Angeles Police Department was formed in 1869 and has since become the third largest law enforcement agency in the United States. It's a vast organization that has had a lot of scandals over the years. And here are just a few of their greatest hits. Oh, yes, we'll get into it. But 1869 is only years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And again, I said this earlier these police agencies were erected in order to help also control the black population right. and the LAPD has been no different since and to this day ice cube called the LAPD the biggest gang in America. Cause they LAPD is always like, yeah, we got to fight gangs. And, and the, even the clown in the white house says that, but mm, have you guys looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> anyway, Daryl Gates was the chief of police from 1978 to 1992. And he took a hard line, aggressive approach to law enforcement. The organization under Gates was particularly hard on communities of color. No shit. Harassment and intimidation, abuse, excessive force of young and black and brown men and women and families was commonplace. Being brown or black automatically made you a suspect. The LAPD was doing stop and frisks long before it was called stop and frisk. And the police felt so comfortable denigrated black and brown people, they used racial epithets over their radios. Mm -hmm. Radio transcripts also revealed that officers would use the shorthand NHI or no human involved for crimes involving black victims and perpetrators. And they uh, still use these uh, racial epithets. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of cell phone video of police killing black men or black people. And the police don't go to jail, but the people who make these videos do. Did you know that? Mm, I didn't. Yeah. The person who videoed um, <sighs> Brown, the kid in... Uh, he was 18 and he was shot in the street and his hour his body was left over and hours i can't ferguson think of it. yes and uh that guy went to jail who who mm. filmed it um wow. and so anyway uh connie rice a civil rights attorney who used to regularly sue the department over its practices in minority communities and who now works with the lapd as a consultant said they showed the lapd's racism anti-semitism homophobia, misogyny, you name it. They had every ism you could think of on steroids. Yes, agree. 
Law-abiding black and brown citizens were often targeted. Regular, everyday people like teachers, ministers, whatever, it didn't matter. If they were black or brown, they were suspects. Several decades of this and the brutality that came with it if the person had the audacity to ask why they were being stopped contributed to a deep resentment in the city's black and brown neighborhoods. Then there was a hor- the horrific beating of Rodney King, rest in power King, by LAPD officers. After a speed chase on March 3rd, 1991, police officers pulled King out of his car and savagely beat him. We all remember. A video was made of the incident and the four officers who targeted King were charged with excessive use of force. The officers were acquitted at trial, which led to Los Angeles going up in flames during the 1992 riots. Yeah. And following that, in 1995, LAPD Detective Mark Furman was called to the stand to testify regarding his discovery of evidence in the O.J. Simpson case. Furman claimed on the stand that he had not used the N-word in the past 10 years. Simpson's defense team then produced recorded interviews with Furman and witnesses, proving that he had, in fact, repeatedly used racist language during that time. His proven lie raised the possibility that Furman had planted key evidence as part of a racially motivated plot against Simpson. And this has been cited as one of the reasons why Simpson was acquitted. Well, uh, Simpson's jury had, um, I think, more at least more than one black woman on the jury. And they they lived in L.A. and experienced the riots and experienced the feeling of we finally got them. We finally got them. It's on videotape now. They, those police will have to go to jail for what they did to Rodney King. And they and then it. they didn't. The entire black community was fucking pissed. And I've said this before. Black people do not give a fuck whether OJ killed or not, because what uh, OJ is a symbol of is the system that has typically been a system of injustice for black people finally worked in black people's favor. Um Then there was the Rampart scandal, which I wasn't aware of. So I'm glad we have this in the episode that broke in 1999. And this was huge. The Rampart division had an anti-gang unit that was supposed to infiltrate the criminal element preying on the mostly immigrant communities Rampart served. Instead, some of the Rampart cops became criminals. Many officers involved with the unit regularly engaged in misconduct, including planting evidence, bank robberies, dealing drugs, doing drugs, sorry, I couldn't help myself, <laughs> and committing perjury. Suspects were tortured and cops sold cocaine they'd stolen from the police evidence rooms. Yeah, it's crazy, that story. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. it's not uncommon of police departments. Yeah. People should know that. In short, the LAPD has a long, 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 long history of racism, abuse, and corruption. Police often mm-hmm. used excessive force, and police brutality was pretty commonplace, particularly with people of color. Mm-hmm. And the department did very little to rein it in. Things are better these days, but the LAPD still has problems. And it still has a pretty high kill rate, um, although I think Phoenix leads the country right now in police kills. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate because I live yeah. here and have yeah. children here. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it should be known, I, I mean, read up on your history, of course, but um, one thing that's really difficult for people to understand is that Black people in the United States and people of color and immigrants are not... Ooh, sorry, I hit my microphone, are not seen as human 
And that's why it's easier for police to treat them the way that they do. And it's why it's 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 easier for when it's on the news for people to be like, "Mm, no biggie. Whatever. uh, Whatever. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever's clever. Uh, So now we're going to get into the killer's early life. So take it away, Ben. Christopher Jordan Dorner was born on September 11th, 1979 in New York. Soon afterwards, his mother took him and his sister and moved to the Los Angeles area. He spent his childhood living in Los Angeles, transferring between multiple schools in the area. I did not find anything out about his father. Um, I believe he was raised by his mom alone and she was a nurse. So I heard a statistic at the Revolt Summit that occurred this past weekend. Revolt is a network of Black culture YouTube shows and podcasts. And uh, they have the summit of all these super cool, interesting um, Black people to talk about how we are going to move the Black community forward. But one of the statistics that they talked about is how before the war on drugs, 20% of homes were single mother, single black mothers raising children. And now that statistic has risen to about 75%. Wow. And yeah, it's crazy. Um, Dorner was a black man in America, and that is difficult because of a couple of things. The adultization of black youth, meaning at the age for boys, it's at the age of seven or 10 that the society... Um, views bad things that happen to black boys as their fault, them being responsible for it. And if you know any seven to 10 year old boys, that is not always the case. Um, so it's very unfair. And also physiologically, as I mentioned the stress, but, um, and I can't remember which podcast is what I wish I did. Um, but they talked about the weathering of black bodies. And um, this case was specifically about women because it was talking about black women and their um, fetal maternal uh, mortality rates. But Physically, a black woman is seven years older than a white woman. So I'm 35. I just turned 35 this summer. And I have, I'm physically, blood pressure, all that stuff, labs, et cetera, et cetera, the same age as somebody who's seven years older than me. That's crazy. Yeah. That Due is to crazy. the stress of existing in a white supremacist society. And I, uh, the numbers are not that different for black men. So, wow. And Dorner was the only black kid in each of his classes at elementary school in the L.A. suburb that he lived in. Mm. He was called the N-word throughout his life. And when he was very young, he decided he was no longer going to accept it. He took action, first verbal and then physical. And the abuse followed him into his career in the military and as a police officer. By the way, any 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 white people who are allies who are listening, if you hear um, racist behavior going on around you and there are people of color in the room, they might be too afraid or unable to say anything about what's going on. So you are not likely to lose your job if you mention that what somebody said was racist. The person of color probably is or will be um, ostracized. So if you have the power to call this kind of behavior out, you should because it's okay for you to do it. It's not okay for us to do it. By the way, I know that um, Sword and Scale... (laughs) is problematic. I, uh, when I got into my true crime bag, I, I, in 2016, I, uh, fell in love with Sword and Scale. It was one of, it was one of the first true crime shows that I had ever listened to. But then you go to Twitter and you see that this dude is problematic anyway. Mm -hmm. So he 
So he, this dude, he, um, the host, he read Dorner's manifesto on the show, and he said the full ass fucking n word every single time it was noted in the Facebook post. Wow. And uh, his his name's Mike Boudet, and he is a white dude. Uh, so. <laughs> If you are listening, Mr. Boudet, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to trash on the true crime community, like the true crime podcast community, like we're all in this together. But you can't fucking say that word, even if it's written in front of you in your script. <laughs> he recorded the episode in March of 2019, so he knew better. And if no one in your family is a descendant from people kidnapped from Africa hung from trees or shot in the midst of that word being said to them or had the police or some dumbass racist person call you that in school or the grocery store to hurt you, you don't get to say that word, even if it's in the fucking script. In case you were wondering why it is not okay to say, that's why. He tried to say that sticks and stones will break my bones, the words will never hurt me. The N-word doesn't fit into that uh, category, sir. Uh, If this ignorant ass white man does not sat out somewhere and shut the fuck up by my pleasure just flew <laughs> I, I, I had to listen because researching for the show and everything and we properly cited Mr. Boudet's show in in our show notes but god damn <sighs> yeah yeah so I admit too that the first true crime podcast I ever listened to was Sword and Scale. Mm-hmm. But even then, I was kind of put off by his attitude, which is kind mm-hmm. of sanctimonious. Um, mm. He's kind of like the male version of Nancy Grace. <laughs> oh, that's not nice. <laughs> I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. <laughs> I I think the true crime fans who appreciate that. Uh, the true crime space, the true crime podcast space is flooded by white males who oftentimes miss the nuance of the stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, might appreciate that. So later I heard about some of the complaints that people made against him, which I won't go into, but just Google Mike Boudet and, and you'll find him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was booted from his network for his behavior and he's been whining about it ever since. And I tried <laughs> to listen to the Christopher Dorner episode, but I, I couldn't get past the five minutes of whining that Boudet does at the beginning oh, of the episode. Um, oh, he's boy. upset because he can't say whatever the fuck he wants without consequences, invoking freedom of speech. Uh, well, a lot of people confuse freedom of speech with freedom from consequences. And yeah, we do have freedom of speech here in the U.S., mm-hmm. but what that means is we can say, complain about the president without fear of being arrested. But what mm-hmm. that does not mean is that there are no consequences. Like a mm-hmm. podcast network can boot you from their network for posting something nasty about women on social media on International Women's Day. Woo! It does not reflect well on their company and they have a right to protect their interests. Sure. You can be fired from your job for saying certain things. Freedom of speech does not protect you from that. You won't go to jail for it, but you might not have a job either. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of the reality of our society. I mean, that's yeah. just the way the way yep. it is. Um, so, so quit whining. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, white, I know white men. I'm married to one. I love him very much. But um, I, my understanding of the white men who have been in my life is that um, they believe very deeply in the systems that we have in the United States and society. And that if you 
break the rules, you should get in trouble. But if they break the rules, it is kind of different. I, yeah, I think I think they get really upset when uh, they're they feel like they're being oppressed, and we're used to being oppressed. Right. <laughs> we're right. Like, yeah. We're like, you know, whatever. You know, move on, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, figure it out. But but don't just sit there whining about it. Um, I think a lot of white men are not used to being oppressed, and when they do feel like they're being oppressed, they get really upset. Yeah, yeah, I I agree I agree completely. And uh for those of you listening, I do not <laughs> I do not hate white men. I am not against white men. I am against fucking racism. I hate sexism and I hate racism and white supremacy. And and not all white oh. men are the same either. So we got to exactly. say that. Yeah. Right. White men are not a monolith and neither are black people. So Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, so he was canceled and he was really really offended about it. Uh yeah. and there is something to be said about making a mistake owning up to it and trying to be better i hope you're listening right. to joe biden but you're probably not. yeah he uh, he just would <laughs> not admit uh he will not admit that he did anything wrong he, he's just like mad about it yeah and uh, dorner dorner back Dorner to the story did too. yeah <laughs> he, he did kind of the same thing yeah yeah he decided at a very early age that he wanted to be in law enforcement and make that his career. And as a teenager in La Palma, he signed up with the local police department's youth program, planning to eventually become an officer. He was a football player at Cypress High School before attending Southern Utah University in the late 1990s. And then after graduating from Southern Utah University in 2001 with a degree in political science, Dorner joined the Navy. There he was trained in combat techniques and counterterrorism. He was recognized as a skilled marksman, receiving commendations for his proficiency both with rifles and pistols. When he left the Navy, he stayed in the Navy Reserve. Hmm. So Dorner lived in a quiet, affluent area in La Palma, Orange County. And Orange County is very conservative and very white with his mother, Nancy. Neighbors who occasionally saw Dorner lifting weights in the garage recall that he would say hello to them as they passed by. He was described by a friend as smart, a good man, honest and thoughtful with a lot of integrity and really likable. Yeah, I've heard that he was pretty charming. Everybody found him charming. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. He applied to the police academy and graduated in February 2006, but he was still in the Naval Reserve, and he was called up for a 13-month military deployment in November of 2006. When he returned to the LAPD in July of 2007, he was still on probation and was assigned to the San Pedro area with Sergeant Teresa Evans. Evans was not impressed with Dorner, and I wonder if this because i think evans was a white lady who there's an incident that occurs later and i I wonder if her um now a word from our sponsor BetterHelp. how we care for our minds affects how we experience life so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain like learning a new language or taking power naps but there's also better help online therapy now we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit oh, yeah. hq oh yes and we have both used therapy throughout our lives including better help and especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times mm-hmm. challenging thoughts 
feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't yeah. have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So oh yes, and it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's BetterHelp.com slash fruit. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic yeah. that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy an affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow! Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today or in the future, never or are undecided, it's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Uh, racial bias played in her um, impression of it's, Dorner. It's possible, yeah. According to a later suit, Evans said that Dorner once accidentally shot himself in the hand, that he assaulted a classmate during uh, LAPD training, and that he lied about being in military combat and that he failed the department's psychological exam. Which um, I'm not really sure how he made it into the academy if he failed the psychological exam. I thought they had to pass it. I don't know. Mm, I don't know. But anyway, according to an ex-girlfriend, Dorner was paranoid and moody. She said that Dorner flashed his police badge on their first date and that much of his identity was wrapped up in being a police officer. She said she thought that he was the type of person that couldn't exist without having the title of police officer. You want to know the quickest way to get my lady boater down? <laughs> Show me a police badge. <laughs> <laughs> So she she posted a warning about him on don'tdatehimgirl.com. Hey, uh, I need a hip hop air horn for that because that is fucking dope. There we go. <laughs> she even posted his badge number and described him as severely emotionally and mentally disturbed, twisted, and super paranoid. She claimed that Dorner hated himself for being black and at one point, he asked her to act more like a white woman. The post said, just be careful because this guy is a police officer and he will probably think that he can get away with anything. If you value your sanity, stay away from this guy. 
And Dorner's other relationships with women were troubled. Court records show that Dorner was married to a woman named April Carter from April 27th to May 24th in 2007. Her brother told a TV station that Carter was embarrassed by their brief marriage and never spoke of it. He said the marriage really only lasted eight hours and that he never even met Dorner. Mm. Dorner allegedly once told a girlfriend that he bottled up his emotions inside and internal police documents suggest that he was struggling when he got back on the force after returning from a deployment in Bahrain with the Navy Reserves. And I have to, this culture corner, <laughs> uh, black, I've said this on a past episode recently, black men have only really been full men and citizens since LBJ signed in that civil rights act and they had the opportunity to vote and they couldn't be discriminated against for their race um, in employment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I personally believe that toxic masculinity is real and this bottling up your emotions inside is real, but I think it's more of a crisis with black men because we on- they have only recently been allowed to be full human beings. Right. I'm done. Yeah. Good point. According to Sergeant Evans, once when responding to a man with a gun call, Dorner just walked directly towards the suspect. She said that he told her that the LAPD had discriminated against him as a black man and that he intended to sue. She saw him as unstable, perpetually angry and frustrated and eager to see racism in every encounter, which, you know, this is what happens when you experience a lot of racism, especially as a child. You do tend to see it everywhere. Well, yeah, and it is everywhere. It's not just in our heads. And um, it's it's easy for white people to be like, I don't know if that was really racist or I'm not racist. I'm a nice person. And just being nice doesn't make you not racist. Also, um, black people are experts in the topic. So if a black person tells you something (laughs) is racist, you are not qualified (laughs) to say that it's not. So I do think that some, some people are, more sensitive than others. Uh oh, problematic Uh-oh. horn. <laughs> put, put on the problematic siren. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't know how. I. I don't know. I have to. I have to digest that because I don't know if that's true. Um. Okay. I'm thinking about like w- there's uh women. Um, well, we we experience oppression as well, and yeah. uh, some women are really offended by everything, and they're militant and they're angry. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. other women who um, might see sexism, uh, but are not quite as I, I don't know sensitive about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Am I making mm-hmm. any sense? I well I when you when you frame it in that way I I think it does make sense that some people are just always on edge and it sounds like that's yeah. what Dorner was just always on yeah. edge just always looking always, always looking, looking for, for racism and the moment, yeah the moment it touched him maybe he overreacted like his nerve yeah. his okay, nerves that's, that's what I meant yeah I'm thinking like a toothache like he yes. had a racism toothache uh, yes. Uh, 
I'm probably gonna get slapped for describing it that way, but that's I'm no, trying to get people. No, to but nerves are very sensitive, <laughs> so that makes yes. sense. So, so yes. like every time, every time he bit down on something, I don't every know time, how far we're gonna go every with time this. He put something <laughs> in his mouth, his racism nerve. But, but I, I also do think that um, people shouldn't. Um, black people aren't making this up. So, like, if at work you have there are different rules for you as a woman of color and um, everybody else in your department is white and they don't have to follow the same rules that you do. You do kind of have to question like, wait a minute, is are they extra policing me because I'm a black woman? And, you know, if you're a woman and um, you're like, if you're at work and like your bathroom breaks are like policed or, um, uh, closely managed or examined or criticized or, or so you're like, told can't can't wear certain things yeah. or yeah because that's happened yeah. to me before yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean that I, it, it happens to all to all of us but you know who it doesn't happen to so anyway yeah um, so, so i'm not i'm not uh dismissing the fact that there is racism and i'm not dismissing yes. the fact that he saw racism no you are not what i i guess what i was saying was like how um sensitive he was and and eager to look for racism on edge yeah like it, it he was he was uh, in my opinion so just in by it and so on edge by it and it, it, it can do that to you yes and that's, that's what I was saying he yeah. especially as a child if he's mm-hmm. experienced a lot of um, something bad yeah that is going to follow you throughout your life it's going to affect yeah. you throughout your life and it sounds like he had a pretty shitty childhood in his schools and experienced a ton of racism so yes. I, I, and I'm not saying it's it's crazy I'm just saying you know that's probably why (laughs) yeah he might have been somebody who's more sensitive to it less able to sort of um work through it or get past get past it a lot of of times as a as a black person we have to just we have to just swallow it i've been called the n-word so many times throughout my life i've been told to go back to africa go back to where you came from so many times throughout my life i've been told that my knees and my elbows because they're dark they're black look dirty and that i am probably a dirty person or you're pretty for a black girl but no thanks um you know and so these things stick with you and then when you get into the workforce uh it um you see it in systems you in it's it's literally embedded in the american system the united states cannot exist without the oppression of black people and everybody needs to know that and some of us see it more than others um and some of us experience it more than others but it's there and so right. Uh, I think the whole point of this, I this was a healthy conversation. Um, and, you know, I think that you guys listening should have conversations like this with the people around you. Um, if your timeline is all snow, I don't know, find somebody on, uh, you know, the Internet that you can talk to or, you know, DM me or Beth and see what see what we think. But I think I think more conversations like this should happen. So, yes. Anyway, um, and we're not going to solve racism in one episode, but we're going to try. <laughs>
Sergeant Evans said that Dorner repeatedly asked why he was being put back on patrol without reintegration training. At one point, he began weeping in the patrol car and demanded to be taken back to the police academy for retraining. Evans warned Dorner that she was going to give him a poor performance review if he didn't improve while he was on patrol. Now, according to Evans, who again is a white lady, after she warned him about needing to improve his police work, Dorner filed a complaint that she had kicked a mentally ill man named Christopher Gettler in the head and chest during an arrest outside of a hotel. During the resulting internal investigations, Evans was put on desk duty and prevented from working overtime or off-duty security jobs. And I'm sure she was not very happy about that. Yeah. During the investigation, hotel employees were interviewed and they said that they had not seen the alleged kicks. And the LAPD found it suspect that Dorner had waited two weeks after the alleged incident before complaining. Although later, during an appeal, Dorner testified that he was hesitant to report the kicks because when he was in the police academy, he had reported an incident in which two recruits were using a racial epithet against another recruit. And he had been shunned by the other recruits after. After that, so he did not want to speak up again. It makes total sense to me. And uh, yeah. I heard a deposition interview of the man who was kicked in the face, and um, he was a mentally ill gentleman. Um, and uh, he did, I think, suffer a cheek fracture, but he didn't recall the specific details of the female officer that did it to him. And right. he described her as a um, light skinned black woman when it was actually this white woman. So white lady. then they yeah. were like, that ah, doesn't count out, out, throw it out. It doesn't count. Yeah. So, um, and that is, I mean, you guys are like professional investigators. So anyway, yeah. according to the testimony of Captain Deming, who the incident was reported to, Dorner was visibly upset when he spoke with Captain Deming and Captain Deming believed this was caused by fear of repercussions for reporting misconduct by a training officer. Dorner told Captain Deming, promise me you won't do anything. Dorner testified that the reason he asked Captain Deming not to do anything was that he knew Sergeant Evans had a child to support and he did not want her to lose her job. Okay. Then Dorner sat before a Board of Rights hearing in December of 2008, accused of making the story up. Dorner was deemed a liar and fired. Armed guards stood watch as Dorner was led from the building. How that's um, um, just um, had to have been humiliating. Yeah. According to James Usera, a friend of Dorner's from college, the verdict would have come as a huge psychological blow for Dorner, who highly valued integrity. And uh, you should know that black people in general get very upset when people accuse them of lying or stealing or anything negative. Yeah. Uh, I guess I guess everybody does, but. I mean, I think for in particular, yeah, in particular, like when you're followed around in the grocery store and are already assumed when you walk into they're the store, already, they're people, already assuming that you're going to steal. Already think we're bad, yeah. 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 So, um, so it it, it I, I feel I feel like it, it might hurt a little bit more. Um, he said, I don't think this had as much to do with his career so much as his being called a liar. Of course, that doesn't excuse what he did, but I think. That's what pushed him over the edge. You could call him whatever you want. Just don't ever call him a liar. 
For the next six months, Teresa Evans carried her service Glock everywhere. She wore it to the bathroom, to the grocery store, to her son's soccer games. When she drove home, she circled the block to make sure Dorner wasn't following her or waiting to ambush her. She believed that sooner or later, Dorner would come for her. Quite terrifying. Yeah. Randall Kwan represented Dorner at his Board of Rights hearing. He has said that Dorner blamed him for his firing and was a man obsessed with the concept of his own integrity, uh, that he possessed a kind of hero syndrome. Dorner spent the next couple of years attempting to overturn his dismissal, but in 2010, a judge upheld the LAPD's decision. Dorner was a Naval Reserve unit commander for eight months in 2009 at a northern Nevada air base and bought a home in Las Vegas. After November 2009, Dorner was assigned to a volunteer training unit at a Naval Reserve Center in Los Angeles but he was becoming increasingly more isolated, withdrawing from friends and family. And on February 1st, 2013, Dorner was officially discharged from the Navy. And I don't think that it was his choice. So now we're going to dive into the timeline and we're not going to get all the way through it because this is already right. a long episode. Part so one, yeah. part two. At about 7 p.m. on Sunday, February 3rd, 2013, 28-year-old Monica Kwan, an Asian woman and the daughter of Randall Kwan, and her fiance, 26-year-old Keith Lawrence, a black man, left a Super Bowl party. Kwan and Lawrence met as students at Concordia University in Irvine. He was on the men's basketball team, and she was on the women's. He went on to join the USC Department of Public Safety, and she became an assistant basketball coach at Cal State Fullerton. And the two enjoyed shooting hoops together, and they were sneakerheads. Yeah, sneakerheads, somebody who loves sneakers. Uh, We've talked about that before. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because my husband has hundreds of pairs of sneakers and even goes to sneaker conventions. At 9.10 p.m. in the parking lot of the couple's Irvine condo, a passerby walked up to the Lawrence car, and the car's engine was still running, and the headlights were on. The passerby saw that the couple was slumped in their seats, having been shot to death. There did not appear to have been a fight, and Monica was still wearing her engagement ring, so the police didn't think it was a robbery. Police believed the couple had been ambushed and they had been shot multiple times with fatal shots to the back of their heads. It probably happened around 7.30 p.m. and nobody in the nearby condominium complex had heard anything, which seemed improbable to the police. So they began to suspect that the killer had used a silencer and it had possibly been a hit of some kind. Police eventually collected 14 shell casings and a gun suppressor. But the police were puzzled. The couple had strong family ties and no known enemies. Police logs were checked for reports of road rage in case a driver had followed the couple home. They talked to neighbors, friends, co-workers, and family members. They asked Randall Kwan who might have wanted to hurt his daughter. He had been the first Chinese-American captain at the LAPD, which hip-hop airhorns to you, Mr. Kwan, but I'm sorry for your loss. And he had run a squad targeting Asian gangs. He had also worked as a lawyer representing police officers facing termination like Dorner. 
They asked if he knew if there was anyone who might have hated him enough to do this, maybe someone he had arrested or a disgruntled client, but Quan couldn't think of anyone. He saw himself as a cop who had been respectful to everyone, his clients and even those he arrested. Police learned of a strange call someone made to the USC Athletics Department. The call came from a block number, and the man wanted to know what hotel the basketball team was staying in for a game in San Luis Obispo. When he was not given the information, the caller abruptly hung up. Police began to suspect that Monica Kwan had a stalker. She was gorgeous, by the way. Yeah, she was. On Monday, February 4th, Pedro Ruelas arrived to work as usual. As part of his morning routine, he took out the garbage. When he got to the dumpster, he noticed that someone had thrown out what looked like police or military equipment. And when he saw a police officer driving by, he flagged him down and told him of his find. In the dumpster, police officer Paul Hernandez found a ballistic vest, two military-style ammunition cans, each with several hundred bullets, two cans of olive drab spray paint, and I hope you can hear that thunder outside. It makes it sound scarier. The kind <laughs> SWAT uses to camouflage... Oh, <laughs> can you okay. hear <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought it wasn't recording. <laughs> ah, are we okay? <laughs> I'm okay, yeah. It was a dark and stormy <laughs> night, and the recording wasn't functioning <laughs> properly. <laughs> so, uh, where was I? Oh, okay. Two cans of olive drab spray paint, the kind that SWAT uses to camouflage helmets and rifles. One plastic military surplus gasoline container that was empty. Two mortar tube containers, also empty. One black leather police d- duty belt two AR-15 magazine pouches, one dark blue LAPD uniform, and one police officer field notebook. On the cover of the notebook were two handwritten names and serial numbers. They were Dorner's 37381 and Evans 3105. And I was just reading that list. I just read to my kids the other day that Hungry Caterpillar, on Monday he ate one strawberry, on Tuesday he <laughs> ate two cans. <laughs> on Monday he ate two cans of olive drab paint. <laughs> the coin SWAT uses to camouflage. <laughs> Um, (laughs) And then on Sunday, he no longer wanted to kill people and was apprehended. That's how the story goes. The end. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Officer Hernandez took the equipment to the station house and logged it. But he was afraid that an officer had been the victim of a robbery. So he called dispatch and asked them to run the names and numbers in the notebook. There was no current officer Dorner, but there was an officer Evans. Hernandez then gave Evans a call to ask about any stolen property. She told him that she had not been the victim of a robbery. Hernandez then inquired about Dorner. She was not a fan. (laughs) Well, we know why. (laughs) She told Hernandez that Dorner had been her trainee six years ago, but that he had been a problem cop and that he was fired. She did not know where he was now or why his gear was in the trash bin. It was also on this date that Dorner posted his manifesto on Facebook. On Tuesday, February 5th, Evans heard that Randall Kwan's daughter had been murdered because she had been thinking about the call that she received about the police equipment found in the trash. She started to wonder if Dorner had had something to do with it since Kwan had represented Dorner at his hearing. She thought it was a long shot and she mulled it over for a while, but then she called the watch commander to discuss her suspicions. On Wednesday, February 6th, 
Detective Victoria Hurtado was told to look into Dorner. She learned that more of Dorner's equipment was found in a trash bin just down the alley from the first. Found was a SWAT-style helmet, a military-style backpack, and a magazine with 9mm bullets. Detectives located a surveillance camera that showed Dorner pulling into the alley in his Titan early Monday, the morning after the shootings. He could be seen throwing the items into the bins. He seemed to be in no rush, and he had picked an alley in plain view of the National City Police Station. That's interesting that they they sort of comment on the fact that he was sort of calm. Yeah. Detectives drafted search warrants for Dorner's and his mother's homes. They didn't have enough evidence to charge him with murder, but they could charge him with possession of a prohibited weapon. Since the police duty belt had thrown away included an expandable baton, which civilians are not allowed to carry. Surprise. I did not know that. Yeah. What's so special about an expandable baton that uh, civilians can't have them? I mean, isn't it basically like a stick? (laughs) It's a stick. Yeah. And actually, before our Escalade got stolen, we had one in our car in case, you know, we as a family got into a sticky situation. Altercation. Yeah. Yeah. So so what's so special about it that civilians are not allowed to have them? I have no idea. You know what? The United States of America is sometimes yeah. baffling. I don't know. It's kind of kind of kooky. Anyway, I don't know. Detective Hurtado called Randall Kwan and asked him if the name Christopher Dorner meant anything to him. His response was, "Oh my God, that guy's crazy." Uh oh. Shortly afterwards, someone found a Facebook post by Dorner and forwarded it via email to Hurtado. It has since been called Dorner's manifesto, and it's eleven thousand four hundred words long. Mm. Okay, well, it, it's a little long, yeah, quite lengthy. Uh, in it, among many other things, he said committing murder was a necessary evil, quote unquote. He said that he would not stop shooting people until his name was cleared in the case that led to his firing. When the truth comes out, the killing stops, he wrote. He threatened to kill officers as well as their families. Dorner named a number of LAPD officers who he blamed for his firing. He also said that African-American supervisors who belittle subordinate white officers were a high-value target. You breed a new generation of bigoted Caucasian officer when you belittle them and treat them unfairly, Dorner wrote of black supervisors. In one section, he accused officers from the LAPD's Hollywood division of using racial epithets about African Americans, which is probably true. Oh, I believe it 100%. Um, Mm -hmm. Dorner also pointed out in his manifesto that many of the officers involved in the Rodney King beating and the Rampart scandal in the 1990s, um, which uh, officers who were regularly involved in making false arrests, giving perjured testimony and framing innocent people have been promoted to supervisory and command positions within the LAPD and surrounding departments. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He blamed the LAPD not only for the loss of his career, but also the loss of his relationships with his mother, sister, and friends. He also said, self-preservation is no longer important to me. I do not fear death as I died long ago on January 2nd, 2009. Mm. Regarding Quan, he said, I never had the opportunity to have a family of my own. I'm terminating yours. That's pretty cold-blooded. Wow. Yeah. Dorner's identification as the suspect in the Irving slings and threats against law enforcement and their families prompted a blue alert 
uh, I don't think, maybe I didn't say that. A blue alert. I can't not say it like that. Uh, a way to coordinate information about violent attacks on law enforcement officers. Every officer mentioned in the document was provided with police protection. What terrified police was the potential lethality of a heavily armed, six foot, 270 pound man, schooled in combat techniques, who had pledged to bring unconventional and asymmetrical warfare to those in the LAPD uniform. Charlie Beck, the head of the LAPD, told reporters that Dorner knew what he was doing because, quote, We trained him. He was also a member of the armed forces. It's extremely worrisome and scary, unquote. In his manifesto, Dorner said he would use all of his training to avoid capture and track his targets. I also think it was scarier for the LAPD because this dude was black. It wasn't just that he was six foot, 270 pounds. He was also black. Um, So that's where we are going to leave it for this episode Um, Please come back next week and listen to part two. Uh, So now, without further ado, we are going to get into how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die. Here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. That's right. So uh, if people think people of color, uh, POCs, are making up how they are treated unfairly by the police, think again. So this tip is for people like me who are terrified of police and would never call them for any situation. Uh, One third of people in the United States who are killed by someone that they do not know are killed by police. Wow. And the police don't have to answer for it. So this is what my parents told me and my brother's. And what I tell my kids that they may uh, abuse you, but whatever happens during a police encounter, just do what they say so that you can come home alive. Just get through the encounter so you can come home and we can have we can pursue avenues for recourse in the event of abuse. So um, I found an article on Vice titled A Black Man's Guide to Not Getting Shot by the Police by Noel Ransom. And it was posted on uh, April 16, 2018. Um, And it's got some dark humor mixed into it, which I loved and couldn't resist. But uh, there are some some good tips, too, and funny ones. So uh, comply with police orders if you encounter the police. And also, don't try to reason or plead your case. Just shut up. Um, Don't breathe. Uh, Don't have anything in your hands. Don't run. Uh, don't play with toy guns. I don't let my, my um, kids play with toy guns outside, even even water guns, because Tamir Rice was 12 and he was playing in the park with a right. toy gun and he was shot in four seconds. Anyway, uh, don't own a legal gun. Uh, don't sit in public and don't go outside at all and be white. Problem solved. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm white, um, but but I have had uh, bad encounters with police just um 
okay i have to say here um you know there's there's good cops and there's bad cops mm-hmm. um the bad cops are going to uh uh, one bad apple spoils the whole barrel yeah the whole barrel so if there's one bad cop they make all the the cops look bad yeah. and um it's unfortunate and that's that's the ones we hear about too is the bad cops mm-hmm. uh, but there are good cops um but i have had some encounters with cops on power trips Mm. um in one one particular case um my car ran out of gas and Uh i you know i ran out of gas i was on the freeway pulled over as far as i could but then the car wouldn't go anymore so i got out of my car i walked down to the gas station i called somebody uh i got some gas they drove me back to my car when i got there there was a police officer at my car Uh uh-huh and I got out with the gas and he was like, is this your car? Yes, this is my car. What is it doing here? I ran out of gas. He's like, you didn't pull over far enough on the side of the road. And I was like, yeah, I ran out of gas. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> the car I, I wouldn't couldn't. Go, yeah, wouldn't go no any further. And, and he, was, he was on a power power trip and he was being a jerk uh-huh. and telling me you know if, you know threatening to give me a ticket and as soon as i realized that he was on a power trip i'm like oh oh okay uh, yes sir yes sir yes sir i'm so sorry sir you know it, mm-hmm. and just like put on the sugar <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and then he, yeah. he not give me a ticket and he didn't kill me or anything so <laughs> oh and you're still here today to tell about it and i'm still here yeah and, and so i'm not a person of color i don't know exactly what that's like so but um as soon uh, and i've done this before with other encounters like most of the i have to say most of the encounters that i've had with police have have been okay Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been a, a few that weren't. And every time that happens, as soon as I realize this cop is on a power trip, then you just, okay, officer, whatever yeah. you, whatever you say, officer. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that that helps. Um, but depending on what skin you're in, it, it might not matter. So yeah. Yeah. It might not matter, but yeah. it, it, you know, it yeah, but I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. And, and no. exactly. I'm just, you know, reiterating what you said. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Appreciate your validation. Thank you. <laughs> I wish more people would do that. <laughs> the world would be a better place if we all could listen to black women. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get into some serial killer true crime news. Extra, extra, read all about it. What do you got, Ben? <laughs> so speaking of corrupt, abusive cops, mm-hmm. on September 10th, just last week, uh, 43-year-old Arizona State Trooper Tremaine Jackson was arrested on charges of sexual abuse, sexual extortion, kidnapping, harassment, and fraud. Oh. Jackson worked for Arizona DPS for 13 years. Mm-hmm. In early June, the department received a complaint of misconduct against Jackson. The complaint alleged Jackson committed an act of sexual assault against a woman during a traffic stop. Mm. Jackson was immediately placed on administrative leave and an investigation was initiated. Mm -hmm. During the course of the initiation, additional victims were discovered. Eight victims have been identified so far. 
Arizona Department of Public Safety has asked that if you or someone you know has been victimized by Jackson, please contact the AZDPS at 602-223-2389 or submit information online at azdps.gov forward slash Jackson. And I'll include a link in our footnotes so you can refer to that as well. Yes. Um, thank you. That is, yeah, I, was, I saw that on the news and I was like, yeah, I, I was talking to my husband, I was like, he's not the only one. There's no, I mean, the, no, I, this is not the first time this has happened and it won't be right. the last time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really, really fucking unfortunate mm-hmm. and scary. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any other marginalized groups and uh, true crime goodies. So I just wanted to shout out the Amazon series Undone. It's animated. Uh, They use an animation technique that's called rotoscoping. It's where they take live action and then draw over it. And if you saw Tower, the movie about the University of Texas Tower shooting, Uh that's the animation technique that they used in that. And um, I personally really like it. Anyway, um, the show, it's a series. um, I think there's like eight episodes. It's about a Mexican-American woman who is bored with her life and then something crazy happens. I don't want to say too much because I think if I tried to explain the story, it might ruin it for some people um, because there's... I don't know. I I just don't want to do that. So (laughs) in any case, suffice it to say, it's amazing and you should watch it now. Go, go now. Watch. (laughs) Undone. Okay. Got it. I'm going to put it in my, I'm going to put it in my feed. Things to do. We need season two. So everybody get on it and watch it so that they know how popular it is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, all right. Thank you, Beth. And um, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our podcast being patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.